So, uh, today we get to uh, start week two of our series called Undeniable. And as we do that, what we're basically doing, the series leads us all the way to Easter, is we're taking the last few days, the last few steps of the life of Christ uh, before the cross and the resurrection, and we're sort of systematically walking through those and figuring out, A, if the story is familiar, what do we need to re-see? What do we need to to learn anew? And B, if we've not heard some of these uh, stories yet, uh, what is it that God is attempting to show us and tell us about who he is? And so in order to do that, uh, last week we were in Bethany at a dinner with Jesus and uh, you can go back on the podcast and listen to that if you missed that, if you want to catch up on that day. And we've fast-forwarded a few days, and it is now Passover, and we find Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. And so let's read that together to get started. In Matthew 26, verse 19, up on the screen, it says, So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. But Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Well, that's something. That is a power-packed passage. You know what else is power-packed? Kale. Kale, the superfood. Kale. You didn't see that coming. Okay. First service was a little little wobbly there as well. So, kale, which is obviously a natural transition here, kale is the superfood of the age. It is what everybody wants more of. More kale. Give me more kale. Blend kale into my food. Kale cereal, brushing our teeth with kale. You're stuffing kale leaves into your pillowcase and sleeping on kale just in case it helps that way. Kale is that well, everybody wants more kale. It's a big thing. I was reading a story this winter when a, a blizzard was coming through Portland, Oregon, widely known as the um, sort of progressive hipster capital of the world with uh, long beards and curly mustachios and people riding bikes in, in whatever the fashion is of the day. Portland, very cool place. Too cool for me. So Portland, this blizzard is coming. And so what happens here when the blizzard is coming? When they say, oh, winter storm warning, get to the grocery store, stock up on supplies, people buy bottled water, and then milk and bread. Those are the aisles that clear first. Bottled water, milk, and bread, and it's all gone. In Portland, there were pictures of the produce section. Bottled water, fine. Milk, we don't need it. Bread, it's okay. But kale wiped out. (laughs) Everybody in Portland went for kale first. They had potentially weeks of of time in their home with no electricity and no heat and they have no food and no water, but if they had kale, life would be okay. It's that incredible a super food. So the question is this, trivia time. Do you know, up until a couple years ago, who the largest buyer of kale in the entire world was? The largest buyer of kale in the world, the greatest consumer of kale until just a couple of years ago, was the health food outfit that you know and love named Pizza Hut. What? 
how is this possible? Let me tell you. I'm glad you asked. So remember back in the day, the older you are, the clearer this memory will be, unfortunately, when Pizza Hut actually had a buffet. You would go to Pizza Hut and there would be this kind of hood with heat lamps under it and they would have pizzas under there and you'd go for your $4.99 and you got to have a pizza buffet. And so you pick your pizza, you go back to your table, you have as much as you want. There was also this other thing next to the pizza buffet that you remember and it's this long archaic thing from the past called a salad bar. We don't have those much anymore. They had a sneeze guard on it, which tells you all you need to know about why we don't have those anymore. And the salad bar was sort of this mound of ice that they would then put bowls of stuff on. But you can't put a bowl, like a glass bowl of salad on top of ice directly because it would begin to freeze the salad inside and that would not be good. And so what do you do? You need a garnish. A big green leaf of kale was placed down under the bowl and the bowl was set on top of the ice. And then next to it, just for a little bit of added touch, you would take some other little bits of kale and you would kind of put them into the the ice of the salad bar to just give that feeling of freshness. Because why else would you use kale? Because it's this inedible, ridiculous weed. And so they just took it all and they gave it to Pizza Hut and Pizza Hut paid pennies and they they used it as a garnish. It went under the salad bowl, not in it. Now, somebody at Pizza Hut back in the kitchen was like, why do we use this as the... And then they bit it and they went, wait a minute, I feel healthier. And all of a sudden, superfood, okay? What happened is the question I'm asking. What we see is that kale experienced an elemental repurposing. Its very essence in our eyes changed from garnish under the salad bowl to the only thing in my salad bowl. It was an elemental repurposing. It was a total transformation of the way we think about kale, which is exactly what we're doing today. We're going to look at the Lord's Supper, and what I think we will see is Jesus is orchestrating an elemental repurposing. It's going to transform the way we think about something that for many is an old and familiar thing. It is fifth Sunday. Your children are already wiggling, but guess what? It's a good time to wiggle. Kids, I need your attention. This is very important. Can I, see your, can I see your eyeballs? This is good. I see children's eyeballs. They're looking at me. This is excellent. And a couple adults after the first service say this was pretty spooky and they want to know how this works, but I can't tell you. All I can tell you is that this book right here is going to make a very important point for us today. You see, there are people, much in the way that our story will go today, there are people who think that this, the Bible is just a book. It's just a book, like any other book. Whatever your favorite book. The Bible is just another book. And so they, they, when they open their Bible, they think it's just a book, and it's, it's just blank. Just blank pages in their Bible. What, what are you going to do with that? It's just people who think it's a book. There are other people, a little smarter, I think, and they look at the Bible and they go, huh, I don't think it's just a book. I think it's a book that actually has some stories in it that even have a little bit of meaning, like some good ideas or some good advice. And they look at their Bible, and they see something a little different what? How did that happen? I have no idea. But they see there's something different in the book. Then there's a third sort of person that doesn't just see it as a normal book, but they see it as something that's life transforming. That if you really follow what is said in the Bible, if there's this Jesus that we follow, then when we open the book, we don't just see, we don't just see blank pages. We don't just see stories. We see something else. (sighs) 
hope this works, kids. They follow Jesus, and when they open their Bible, they see something else entirely. They see the stories come to life and stories that give life. And so as we look at our story today as a church, we're going to see Jesus sort of do that same thing with the Lord's Supper, with communion. You want to look at it with me? So let's go to that dinner. Let's go to the dinner party in the upper room. Jesus, sitting there at Passover meal, which is a traditional meal that has kind of a traditional script to it. There's a way you work through Passover that they've done for generations. Jesus is sitting in the Passover meal with his followers, and he points to Judas. He goes off script and he goes, Judas, you are selling me out, bro. To which Judas must go, wait, 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 this is not the way this meal goes. The other disciples go, mate, this isn't how this goes. This isn't in the script, Jesus. What are you trying to say? You ever have that uncle, Uncle Remus, Uncle Cletus, I don't know who it would be, Aunt Mabel, whoever that is, at, at like Thanksgiving or at the family holiday, that in the middle of a normal family meal where you're having the, the talk about the weather and what the kids are up to, who has some outlandish, crazy conspiracy theory they want to spout or the wild political thing happens, and then the whole table kind of goes silent for that, that extra pregnant pause where everybody goes, exactly, Aunt Mabel, everybody. And this is kind of the moment I'm sensing that Jesus is like, hey, Judas, you're going to betray me. And the room goes, um, oh. So Jesus then decides to double down on the awkwardness that's been created in the room. So he picks up the bread, this matzah bread, this flat unleavened bread, and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body and we're about to eat it. And so now the whole room is kind of on pins and needles. Like, what are we going to do? So let's talk about the bread for a second. This unleavened bread has many meanings. Depending on which rabbi you listen to and who you followed, there was different reasons that, that the unleavened bread was part of this Passover meal. Passover is ultimately the story of God's taking his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. And so the unleavened bread, it's said by some, is because they left Egypt with such haste that they didn't have time to let the bread rise. And so they always eat unleavened bread on Passover to remember what it was like to flee and for God to save them. The, the bread is actually, it's called lechem onai. It's the bread of poverty, is what it means. The bread of poverty, it's a reminder of slavery and humility. So when they take this bread, this unleavened bread, and they break it, what Jesus is doing is he picks this up, as he breaks the bread, and he says, my body will be broken, my body will be humble, my body will become poverty for you. What he's essentially saying, what is sort of the mind-blowing reality that Jesus is starting with as he picks up the bread, is he goes, I will be your new exodus. That you were brought out of slavery and you crossed the Red Sea and you were brought into safety. I am the new exodus. The new escape from slavery. And as as he says this, I have to imagine that in this room where you can now hear a pin drop, the disciples' eyes begin to dart around and going, what is he talking about? So Jesus then takes the cup. And the cup, remember, if we're following a script, there are reasons that there's the cup, the glass of wine in front of each setting. There were multiple times that you would take the cup and you'd drink from the cup. The first time was to signify God saying, I will take you out, remove you uh, from Egypt. The second one was, I will deliver you. I will deliver you from your captives. The third time they take the wine, it was, I redeem you, redeem you from slavery. The fourth time it was, I will acquire you. You will become my people. And so as you go through a Passover meal, there's these four different times you take the cup. And there was actually a fifth cup on the table, the cup of Elijah, it was called. It was set in the middle of the table, filled and untouched. The fifth cup sat alone on the table. It was the cup of the once and final promise to God's people. 
It was the promise of a coming Messiah. And so for years, this fifth cup would sit untouched in the center of the table. Why? Because human effort couldn't bring it. It was the one cup on the table that transcended all human effort and understanding they knew that God had to send the Messiah. There was nothing they could do but wait for that cup to be fulfilled. So scripture doesn't tell us which cup Jesus lifted. I want to be clear about that. Scripture doesn't tell us which cup Jesus lifted, but there are two clear options. Option number one is that the tradition held after the supper that you would then lift the third cup. Remember, this is the cup that says, I will redeem you. And Paul says in a verse we'll read later, he says, after supper, Jesus took the cup. And so it's possible that Jesus picked up the third cup, the third glass of wine that he held high, the cup of redemption. And he says, drink from the cup of redemption because I will redeem you. He is claiming himself as the true and better redemption. If this is what he did, it is deeply powerful. He is saying, my body is the exodus and my blood is your redemption. Others, others believe that Jesus lifted the fifth cup, the cup of Elijah, the cup of the once and future promise, the cup of the coming Messiah, that it was the cup that was never touched. And yet Jesus in that moment passed the third cup around and he went for the center cup and he said, I'm going to take care of this now. If he reached for the fifth cup, it would have brought on quiet gasping because no one went for the fifth cup. And if Jesus lifted the cup of Elijah, what he is signaling to the disciples is he is the promised Messiah sent to redeem God's people. I am your Messiah. Beyond deeply powerful, this would have been one of the stunning moments of human history where a human being claims to be God. In the presence of his friends, he says, this is not just a movement you are a part of. I am God sent by God to redeem you. As he offers them to drink from the cup, he is saying, I am the Messiah, the once and final promise. At Passover, Jesus essentially says, no matter which cup he takes, he says, my body is the exodus, the true escape from slavery, and my blood is your final redemption. No matter which cup Jesus goes for, the third or the fifth, it depends on where you want to sit on that. Ultimately, it doesn't change the fact that what he's saying is, my body is the new exodus, and my blood is your final redemption. This is the culmination of a wild repurposing of the Passover meal. More than that, Jesus is indicating an elemental transformation, an elemental repurposing, not just of the elements, the bread and the wine, but of life itself. Passover goes from blank, like the book, just a ritual, to, to maybe line drawings, maybe a ritual with some meaning. And then Jesus takes one more swipe at it and opens that book one more time for them and Passover. And he goes, maybe it's more than that. Maybe that Passover is a transformational moment. And if you really understand what's happening here, you will see something you've never seen before. So you imagine being in that upper room at the very crux of history playing out in front of you where Jesus is saying, my death will be your life. My life is going to be given for your redemption. My brokenness will lead to your wholeness. Heaven's loss will be humanity's gain. And Jesus begins to say these things and imply these things and he's lifting the bread and he's lifting the cup. And what he's doing is he's repurposing the elements in front of his disciples. He's repurposing the ritual. He's repurposing life itself. And he's actually doing it through death, which is sort of a weird thing when you think about it. That our weekly remembrance, these tables up front, the table by the back with this bread on it, we take the bread and we dip it in the cup and we remember what we're remembering is not life. We're remembering life lost. It's a death that we're commemorating. It's a table of death remembered. 
I was at a meeting in the last couple of weeks with some ministers from town, and they were talking in this conference room, going around the table about what people were doing uh, for Good Friday. And you're going to partner with you, and yeah, can we come to your thing, and what are you guys doing? And it was just a wide array of different churches represented. And one of the ministers, as we went around the table, someone said, well, will you help us with, with Good Friday? And he looked at them and he goes, well, here's the thing. We don't really focus much on the death. We don't actually like doing the death thing on Friday. We're more a resurrection people. And I kind of did a double take. And he says, yeah, yeah, we don't, we don't really do Good Friday because we don't want to dwell on the death. We want to be about the life. And so we're a resurrection people, not a death people. So, yeah, we probably wouldn't help you with that. And I'm looking back at this going, Jesus said the death is central. That without the death, the resurrection, A, isn't going to happen, and B, doesn't have any meaning. It's the death that starts the whole domino going. Jesus says death is central, and what Jesus is doing is creating a total reframing of the way we see the world. Jesus is showing us the end is the beginning, that death leads to life, that sorrow leads to joy, that the whole thing is being flipped upside down. Jesus could have created a sacrament out of life. His resurrection, we're going to go to the resurrection table every single week. And so he goes, you know, after he rose, he could have said, every week when you go to the table, do so in remembrance of me. And everybody takes a balloon because it's rising. I don't know. And so it could have been this whole other thing. Instead, he goes, when you think of me, think of my body broken, think of the, my blood spill, think of my death and remember it and do it regularly. It almost makes us uncomfortable to consider. We've been chosen and invited to this remembrance of death. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, after supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. Do it in remembrance of me. Verse 26 says, right at the bottom, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do this and remember this and program this into your daily lives, this understanding that the death is central to life. Jesus uses his death to repurpose our life. He flips everything upside down, and then we get invited into a transformative story. It is a backwards narrative in an upside-down kingdom. And until we recognize that about Christianity, that it is a backwards narrative in an upside-down kingdom, then we don't get it. Then we're still doing religion. And Jesus says, it is not about what you earn. It is not about what you do. It is about who I am, and I am including you in me. And through my death, your death dies. J.I. Packer said, it is the death of death and the death of Christ. And when we find ourselves included in that death, that death becomes the celebration. And if we skip ahead from Friday to Sunday, we miss it. And the celebration is there for us to remember and to revel in that Jesus was so loving that he would give his life for us, that he would have his body broken, that he would have his blood spilled. And as a result, you and I would find the death of our death in him. And then the resurrection comes and we find new life. Earlier on his walk, Jesus said, whoever wishes to find his life must lose it. It's the most counterintuitive thing. This has got to be such a struggle to hear for the first time. If you lost your keys and you look to your roommate, your spouse, whomever, and you say, 
hey, I lost my keys. Can you help me find them? And they shout back, if you really want to find your keys, you must first lose them. You might just start punching, right? What is that? I need my keys. I'm late for my appointment. Yes, yes. If thou dost want to find thine keys, thine mustn't ever be looking, but just lose them. And that would be insane. And you would get a new roommate or come to marital counseling. We'd be okay with that. Jesus says, if you want to find your life, just lose it. And we go, that's the same advice. That doesn't make any sense. If you want to find your life, lose it. And later he says, hey, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Deny your agenda. Deny your identity. Deny who you are so you can follow me. Not become a better you. Deny you to follow me. And Jesus is coming up with this crazy idea that in order to find ourselves, we must be lost. In order to find life, there must be death. In order for kale to be the most popular superfood on your grocery store shelf, it had to first die to being the most popular garnish at the Pizza Hut buffet. In order for something to be elementally repurposed, you have to take what it was originally thought to be and kill that in order there might be something else. The same is true for us. If we are to take our old lives and attempt to just fix them up with band-aid and nice rules and religion and think that that's going to make it better, Jesus says that's not how it works. It requires a death to bring you life. More than that, it requires you to deny your own self so that you might become one with me. It's an elemental repurposing of our entire understanding of what life is. That life is not about making the most of myself. Life is about letting go of myself so that it might be included in Christ. It's no longer about earning or working our way to success or or finding our our best righteous life so we might earn salvation. Jesus is saying, I'm doing that for you. I've already done it. We remember death because life is in it. In the bread and the wine is the remembrance of that. When we come to the table, we take the bread and we dip it in the cup and we remember. We've been rescued from bondage. We've been freed and set from our captors. We've been redeemed from our life of sin back to wholeness. We've been acquired as God's new people. Through his death, our death is gone. And so then we walk from the table with the challenge that Jesus will lay before his followers, which is after the death, there's an opportunity for life. That we are invited to live a repurposed life, a life in Christ, a life sharing Christ, a life reflecting Christ to all we might find. The elements of life in Jesus are not striving and yearning, but resting and trusting repurposing the elements, rethinking how life works, transforming the way we view the world, the elements of life, normal life, successful life, get ahead life, striving, working, trying, diligence. The elements of life in Jesus are not striving and yearning. They are resting and trusting. We're invited to die to self and live in Christ's radical freedom and salvation, using our lives to see others find the same life in Jesus. We can rest and trust that all of it needs to be taken care of for us to avoid death and live true life has already been done. And so you and I get invited into this new life where we simply trust and follow. We trust and follow. This story, this piece of scripture to me is our invitation to see a God who will not leave brokenness as is, but who will not allow his children to perish, 
who will not see death win, who will not rely on religion, but will remake brokenness and wholeness by being broken himself, will use death to bring life by subjecting himself to ultimate death on our behalf. It's elemental repurposing. God is eliminating religion through the establishment of beauty and hope in nothing less than the relationship we have with Jesus. And so it is through his life, perfect and sinless, and his death, where he takes sin on our behalf, and his resurrection, where he conquers the grave and offers us new life in him. It is through that that we find our own lives elementally repurposed. It's no longer ritual and religion. It's no longer trying and striving. It is something wholly different. And so we proclaim Jesus' death on a weekly basis because it is in that death where you and I find true life. Jesus' death transforms and repurposes life. The question for us today is, are we living that life? Are we living the life that he died to give us or are we holding back bits of our lives? Are we holding back bits of our identity? Are we holding back bits of ourselves? Or are we willing to truly deny ourselves? Deny the identity and the priority and the agenda, the worldview. Deny the thing that we think we want, the thing we feel would make us happy, the thing that that the world says might be the way and to lean into the way that he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And if you'll deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me, then I'll, I'll call you a worthy disciple. Be included in my love. Be included in my grace and my life. The invitation is there. Are we living that life with him? Let's pray. Yeah. Heavenly Father, you have crafted a story that is beyond my wildest imagination that all of the threads of the story come together in Christ and all of the ancient is made new in him. But Father, you rethink life itself through Jesus. I'm astounded by the beauty of your word, by the beauty of your creation. Father, I would confess that there are many more days than not when I still find myself striving and yearning, when I still find myself in the margins and the pockets where no one is looking, hoping that I might be able to earn the life that you've freely given me. Lord, our choice today, our, our prayer, is that you would help us not only be convicted of those areas so that we might find them and root them out. God, that you, uh, you might find us living in a whole new way. Father, we might see the death of your Son on the cross as the death of our death. And Lord, might we wake up every morning with a new sense of the new life we've been given. More than religion or ritual, Father, I pray that you would find us as a community that is living out of this beautiful relationship and living out of this elemental repurposing of our days. Father, may we be secure in you to the point that we are wild and radical with sharing your love and grace with those around us. Father, find us to be unafraid. People walking through a world that is not about us. Father, unafraid of what comes at us, unafraid of what might be said of us. Lord, may we simply be people about you, pointing to you with our every interaction, holding you up, following your lead. Father, thank you for Jesus. We pray in his saving name.
Amen.